this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. We're currently in the middle of our John Cougar Mellencamp phase. And for those of you who don't know what that means... John Cougar Mellencamp, John Mellencamp, when he started his career, he started under the stage name John Cougar, and he released six albums under that name. And then he decided he wanted to start using his real name, John Mellencamp. But he built this big audience with six albums. He didn't just want to lose the whole audience by switching from the name John Cougar to John Mellencamp. So from the years of 1983 to 1989, he recorded four albums under the name John Cougar Mellencamp. So he went from John Cougar to John Cougar Mellencamp, and then he could finally be just John Mellencamp. So why am I talking about that? Because as you know, I've combined both of the podcasts here. We are currently in the phase known as Random Badassery slash Creative Minds. And then eventually the Creative Minds name is just going to drift apart. Nothing's going to change here except You will get the show that you had before with me talking to guests and every week. In addition, you're going to get episodes with me and Lamb. For those of you who heard this last week, I'm sorry. I just need to make sure that all of you know this. I don't want you guys to think that you're losing anything here. So this week's episode, this episode right now, the one I'm about to start that I'm delaying terribly, making you anticipate terribly, is an episode with Lamb and I. And then later this week, I'll release an episode with me and a friend. So stick around and subscribe. This is Random Badass All right, new mic, new voice. And oh, by the way, um, this is the first time we're in the big boy pond. This is the what? first time. The two uh, two shows, oh, same show now. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. So uh, yeah, how does that make you feel? <laughs> There's considerably more people listening now than were listening before. Does that make you feel uh, nervous at all? Um. How do I how do I put this? No, not in the way that I would think. I'm not nervous. Um, I'm actually excited at the prospect of being able to 
um, help more people. Because I feel like in, in the long run, whether it's the other show or this show, um, it's all about trying to bring positive or try, trying to help people through things. And it's not always positive, obviously. Sometimes we go through some pretty dark stuff as well. Um, but there's definitely more of a true sense of altruism and it's not just about us. You know what I mean? Um, and, and given who I am and what my typical priorities are as a person, I feel very strongly that that will motivate me to do even better in the show. And just to clarify for everybody listening, when he says this show and the other show, he's talking about the way things were before. Everything is this show now. Everything is here now. Um, if you're listening to this on the old on the, on the Random Badassery archive, come over to the new Random Badassery feed. And if you are listening to this as a Creative Minds listener and going, what the hell is this? <laughs> You've already had one episode of this. We've combined both shows. It just makes more sense to me. It, because uh, I don't always get to sit down and talk to people in the interview format every week. So you could either sit and wait for episodes or Lamb and I are always making episodes every week. So I could just put them together and then it's magic. And that is what we call coming full circle. Yes. And for people who don't know, Creative Minds was originally Random Badassery. And then Lamb didn't have time to do the show anymore. So I went on solo and I felt I needed to change the name because it didn't fit anymore. And now it fits again. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 the difficult... See, one of the things that's difficult... I don't want to talk about this too long and bore the shit out of everyone. But um, one of the things that's difficult about doing podcasting, unless you're you know, your radio personality or a comedian, you know, someone who's used to doing this stuff already, you've already learned all your lessons. If you're not one of those people, you have to learn these things as you go along. Like, I'm going to do this, and then this seems like the best choice. And it might be the best choice at the time, but a year later, it's no longer the best choice. That's how things work. Especially, you know, like, we're not sponsored by anyone. So there's no one steering the ship. So I have to keep making decisions that seem like the best choice. And for me, I think this is the best choice for all of you to get the best content and not have to go to two different places to get it. And it just, it makes more sense for me and for you guys. So why the hell wouldn't I do it? I will say though, um, Lamb, going to feeling different, I do um, our goofiness, you know, the, the weird like things that we would do. I'd never thought about it when there was less people listening. But now that there's more people listening... I have thought about it twice where I'm like, oh, well, the first episode of you and I talking started with a conversation about flatulence. Hmm, was that a good choice? Yeah, honestly, I, I think because of where I am emotionally, I just don't give a shit. I don't really give a shit either, but there's part of me that wonders. <laughs> and, and I think that I, that kind of, I, I think we'll get to the point where we don't think about it anymore. Um, and I don't think that we'll be far along. Like it might be three or four minutes into each episode where we just disregard that feeling. Um, I think we've been doing this so long um, and we've been we've done it in so many different ways that the concept of either, you know, modifying our speech patterns or censoring ourselves has just completely gone out the window. Or at least I know that's how I feel. I just don't care. Yeah, it just doesn't happen. This is if you guys are listening to this for the first time, this is kind of more of like a radio show. We've said this before in other episodes. So if you're having to hear this again, sorry. But we're just, you know, sometimes we make stupid jokes. Sometimes, you know, we talk about stupid things, but not for the whole episode. We we seem to oscillate between these like highbrow and lowbrow things. And that's just us as people. So either you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. You can skip these episodes and only listen to the interview episodes, whatever. 
we're going to do this this way. And having the two shows combined, speaking of doing it for a long time, this is technically, with the two of them combined, episode 102. Jeez. So we've broken 100. That's why I bought the microphone. Because I told myself if I ever broke 100 episodes, I'd get the number one microphone. Well, I feel like from that perspective too, like there, there's a polished, there's a polished unpolishedness to us now that I think is just comes from experience and time. I mean, given the number of different iterations of shows that you've done and the many different types of things that you've done um, in order to try to communicate um, with people just in general, there's, there's, there's a sense of completeness now to the way our conversations are that I think is really interesting. Um, you know, especially in, in random badassery where we're just as comfortable talking about um, farts as we are society. You know what I mean? Right. Well, what's interesting to me, because um, there's, I don't know, maybe, I want to say about 10, maybe more episodes of you and I talking. I guess we can't call it random badassery anymore because everything's random badassery. But of our conversations where in the years I've lost the show notes. So I've been going through and slowly listening to those um, and (laughs) redoing the show notes. And what's fascinating to me is how many of the topics we talk to, do we talk about now? came up way back then and I didn't remember us talking about them. Um, and I can see the, the, you know, that polish you're talking about. I could see moments of that where it's like, Oh, that's, Oh, we did that really well there. That's the first time we did that. Well, and it's, it's kind of fun to listen to. It's also cringeworthy because you should always cringe a little bit about what you did in the past. I think. Um, well, I, I feel very strongly that we're, at least on some level, we're just constantly chiseling away at something. Um, you know, like some of the topics we talk about, for example, it's not it's not one conversation. You know, over the period of time in which we've doing this, we've been doing this. I know that my opinions have changed on on a number of things, um, as well as my thought process concerning those things. So I don't I, I don't think that it's unusual that we loop back around to many of these things because they're at least for some of the topics I'm thinking of, they're they're almost omnipresent. Um, in our lives, you know, for example, the the idea of defining what a creative life is supposed to look like, or understanding how and why um, society shapes people um, into fear based creatures that make decisions slowly or impossibly at times. You know, those things are constantly going to come up for us because I think they're things that we deal with as people as well. And as we deal with them and we fight our way through them, um, we make revelations. Um, or, or we have revelations, and we 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 find resources that that change our our mode of thinking towards a particular thing. And over time, it just becomes natural to to share that with each other because that's just what we do, right? And that, with that said, I think we need to jump right into coddling of the American mind. Oh man! Speaking of of changing the way you think, if you guys are just here for the first time, this is a book I've read. Lamb's getting around to reading it. So this will be round two on this book. And this book was powerful, powerful book. I wish I had time yeah. to reread it before today. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm about a third of the way through. And I will tell you that just in, in the third that I've read, um, here's, here's an interesting thing. So I'm afraid to talk about it. It's a little scary, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, it's, for anybody who hasn't read it, it is a book written by two left leftists. I hate that word, but left-leaning professors about um, things happening in colleges. Um, but the things that are happening, you know, as, as call-out culture and um, safetyism and all of these things, they they tend to be things that also people on the left would eat you alive. 
for acknowledging that these things are happening. Um, so it's it's a scary book to talk about because of that, because uh, it's you're talking about something that is in these cases is a healthy reaction in the sense that uh, yes, we don't want people to um, feel unsafe and we don't want people to feel um, marginalized. But then there's also a line where it blows so out of proportion that it actually is destroying the tenants of the establishments um, and is no longer even achieving uh, an actual sense of safety for people. It's setting up um, a whole new paradigm. It's well, I think difficult the, the, to talk about. The, the clarity for me, uh, you know, the one thing, that, the through line, at least from, from my mind, because you know I work in politics, so I deal with this all the time. Um, the, the the tough part is understanding the difference between safety and challenge or, or unsafe and challenging. Um, and in a lot of cases, especially with those two terms in particular, I think the line that separates them blurs massively, almost more than anything I've ever seen, because a lot of it comes down to a, a person's particular comfort level. And I'm not talking about a societally based comfort level that has been beaten into you throughout the course of your life. I'm talking about a human being's actual comfort level if you really get down to it. Right. Um, and I know that that sounds strange, but... I think that we're offended by a lot of things because we're supposed to be offended by them, not because we actually are offended by them. Right. Uh, and we also have some sense of entitlement that we're not allowed to be offended anymore. Yeah, 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 sure. You think uh, that's true? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not, you know, we because this has to do with colleges, we end up talking about the left more, but I see it on the right as well, is that people don't want to be offended. But what sure. they really don't want to be is they don't want to be challenged. Yeah, you know, don't don't challenge what I believe. Um, but the the why why it's so important that this comes up with colleges is because the purpose of a college is to challenge what you believe, so that you can learn something. If you can outlearn things that are wrong, and you can strengthen the things that are right. But the only way that happens through through challenge. And if you start taking challenge at other institutions, the institutions become useless. Sure. And I think a lot of, of what is defined, I mean, one of the, the edicts of the book um, or, or one of the, the main tenets is, is, is concerning call-out culture and how we so vehemently discourage challenge that at, at, at some point or another, we're going to be unable to problem solve both um, in our regular lives as well as on a, on, on a societal level because everybody has such a powerful need to maintain that bubble of, of pure safety and 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 unchallengedness if that's a where i mean no if that's a proper way to say that <laughs> um but you know I, I definitely see that quite a bit um in my political life like i mean even the politicians i work with there's a very strong sense of what i can and cannot say and i feel like that line gets pushed further and further every day um especially as you get higher and higher in the political spectrum you know because now i'm starting to work with um, you know, some some local assembly members, a few a few Senate people and stuff like that. And so from that perspective, like everything that you say has to be so carefully catered to the environment in which you're saying it, that the 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 the, the genuine there's a lack of, of 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 sincerity in politics that I don't think is necessarily defined by the politicians, but defined by the environments in which they have to communicate. Is it no wonder that people don't trust politicians though? Absolutely, but but it's only because they lie all the time. Yeah, but but it's only because they can't trust themselves. You know, that's a two way. It's not even that. It's that they they can't trust that they can make something and people aren't going to blow it out of proportions and then just ruin their whole career for one thing. 
Yeah, exactly. And so there's there's definitely like I mean, I I work with one particular assembly member, um, and I've been around him enough to know how precise he has to be uh, when it comes to how he communicates his views on particular topics. Some of which you would think are are no brainers, but you know, when it comes to being a politician, there's no such thing as a no brainer. And I used to have this this very defined sense of you know, um, politicians shouldn't be in politics if they need the office. Um, they should only be there if they, they, they feel like they can, they can do some good for the world. And that view is starting to slowly change. Um, and what I mean by that is I now feel like, especially for some of them, um, they feel like they can make such a big difference in society. And so because of that, their, their concept of, of, of being reelected, for example, isn't necessarily about their own egos, even though they do very much want to get reelected. Um, it's about, being able to continue doing the work that they do. Um, and more often than not, actually, I'm finding that to be the case. Like my Working in politics has definitely dramatically changed my perception of what a politician has to go through in order to survive in the political spectrum these days. Have you got to the section where they talk about parenting? Is that in the first third? Yes. Um, just, just briefly, though, I think I'm two sections into that. Okay, well, well, we'll hold off on that because that's a big, big topic. I mean, this the book overall is just, it's overwhelming in the scope. And then uh, by the time you get to the end, what I what I really appreciate about it, what they did is it, it, you get to a point where it's so overwhelming, it feels like it's, you know, it's hopeless. You know, so how are we going to fix this? And then they make some suggestions. You know, I mean, their suggestions might not work, but at least they leave the book with, you know, something that you can hold on to because it sure, does feel not like just presenting a, <laughs> a dramatic doom and gloom situation in which society is falling apart at the seams. Yeah, it's 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 pretty. If you read all of the books that I've read for you know the the books that I've been recommending for like the last uh, six or eight weeks or whatever, it's a pretty doom and gloom picture <laughs> overall. <laughs> That's why I've had yeah, to gear off of other things because holy Christ. Holy Christ. And, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I work in politics, so I get to see the real versions of that um, every day too. Like, for example, there's, there's one particular politician that I work with where um, there, was a, there was a particular housing policy that um, was about rent control. And this old couple came in and screamed at him and basically called him the Osama bin Laden of, of the housing world. Wow. Um, to which that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, it's just a hurtful statement to say. Right. Um, but I mean, that's that's what they have to deal with. Can you imagine the, the skin you have to have, the thickness of that skin in order to work in public service? That's just daunting to me. Like every every single day I see them get crushed um, and just stand right up again. You know, so I mean, I have I have a different appreciation now, I think, for politicians because I understand on a very practical level what they have to deal with pretty much daily. Um, and in some cases, you know, as, as I'm starting to work with higher and higher level politicians, basically the, the level of that level or the level of that criticism and the, the profoundness of the arguments in either direction just become exponentially larger. And I, I don't understand. I, I, I don't know how you choose that job, honestly. Yeah. Well, at this point, I don't know how you choose to be a college professor either. Oh, yeah. Jeez. You basically live under a microscope 24 hours a day. Which I did hear, I don't know if it was Jonathan Haidt himself or if it was um, 
another college professor referencing this book, but they did say that the, for the most part, most colleges are not having the same problem as the ones here, or at least not in the degree that he talks about here. It's made, it's mainly just um, a small minority, but it's just huge in those places. Like sure. I can't remember the name of the school in Oregon that fired um, Brett Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember that. Apparently it's, it's just, it's, terrifying there to be a teacher because the, everything they say is just scrutinized to every to the nth degree Ugh, too much well i you know when you start looking at stuff like this and this is very weird to say but you can understand um you can understand the appeal of trump yeah where it's like oh he doesn't give a fuck and he gets away with whatever the hell he wants to say and then you know people who support him it's it, it has to feel good. Be like somebody's just talking. You know, they don't even have to agree with what he's saying, but if they support him, they're like, "Oh, it's just it's good to hear somebody talking in a way that's not, you know, they don't give a damn because everybody else is so guarded and so afraid." Um, I don't know that that's necessarily good to the, the degree with which he does it. I, obviously, I don't agree with pretty much most of the things that come out of the man's mouth. I think he's a moron, but. Um, I, I do think that it's probably really exciting for people to just hear somebody um, talking, regardless of what he's saying, just talking and not giving a damn in the public light because it's so rare. It's so rare. Everybody has, you know, these um, agents and they have these people that are sitting and writing statements for them. And this is what we want you to say. And it's just, it's, it's really fucking boring. It really is. Because we can't get anywhere because we're all just saying things that we want think other people want us to say. And nobody's actually getting down to conversation. And you know what's worse is I actually so I'm I'm left leaning, you know, I'm pretty much a liberal. And I will say that it's far worse on the left than it is on the right. Well, yeah, because inherently that's that's the focus of the left, right? The left is focused on um Oh, we don't want to. We we want to make sure everybody's feelings are taken care of. And I'm I'm not making fun of anyone. It's just words I'm saying. Or you know, like their focus is on nurturing people. Um, whereas more on the right is more about pull yourself up by the bootstraps and be tough. Um, so yeah. So the left is worried about what other people think. So they're always continually scrutinizing what people say. Sure. Because because uh, the left. Um, I'm not going to say whether these things are true. I'm just going to say what people purport. The left purports to support the minority. Um, So you have to protect the minority if that's what you purport, right? Well, then offensive statements and all of these things are going to be uh, things against your ideology. So you have to tear those people apart. That's what people think. Um, I don't know if that's true. I think that sometimes you can say stupid shit and then find your way and stumble this shows a perfect example we say stupid shit all the fucking time yeah we, pretty much every third sentence yeah <laughs> but, but we stumble ourselves into things that we wouldn't have thought of before if we hadn't said the stupid shit if we hadn't said things that were wrong if we hadn't tried and when, when we live in that little paste house of uh paste house that's good i don't even know what the hell that is paste when we live house. in that that little that little white box of this is what's acceptable nothing happens because it's it's scripts. You know, it's like when you call in for a customer support and they're reading you the script and it takes you fucking 40 minutes to get to your actual problem because they got to go through their script. Sure. You never get anywhere. Whereas 
um, if somebody just said, what's the problem? And you're like, here's the problem. Shit, that sucks. Let me get somebody on that. Boom. Done. We're at the problem. We're getting there. We need more of that. Yeah. And I mean, and that's universally true too. Like we need more of that in almost every environment. Um, I, I feel like the the next... So so Trump is a dramatic overcorrection to the current... Or what the, the political climate was when he was running for office, right? Um, the political correctness, the sheer volume of, of people who were polished practice politicians with speechwriters and coaches and publicists who were defined so much by the rhetoric of their parties that it was impossible to understand where they actually stood for something. So you're right. I and mean, I agree with you. As much as I loathe Trump with every fiber of my being, I can understand his appeal. Right. Um, and so, for, but, but the, the, the tough part though, is that I, I feel like it's going to flip in the other direction. And because that's, that's it for, for as much as we'd like to think otherwise, our country is extraordinarily young. So in a lot of ways, we're going through our, our horrible teenage years right now where we're just basically selfish assholes. Um, and we have these, these emotional tirades one direction or the other. So I think in, in the long run, it will correct itself. Um, and there will be a median if we survive that long. Um, but I think the next shift, you know, like I, I see that from from what I see in the in left politics now, is that we're going to go completely in the opposite direction. Oh yeah, and going back to the book, that's one of the problems with what what this behavior does is because we we keep going from extreme to extreme. You know, like sure. we never we never get anywhere because we are, like the title says, we're coddling. You know, it's like, oh well. That word might offend you. Okay, yes, words do offend. They do. We know that. <laughs> Anybody that's the, that doesn't like cursing that's listened to this show so far has been offended at least seven or eight times. Um, that's just the way things are. But that's that's reality. And we're not preparing people for the reality of the world. So what's happening is these, these people, are these human beings, are going off to college, um, believing that the world can be this manicured um, garden you know, where they're perfectly protected from anything that could offend them or challenge them. And then they go to college and then the college, it continues there. Instead of uh, changing that, the college perpetuates it and then they're released into the world. And now these are people that are voting and these are people that are running for office. And they believe these things because they've never actually lived in a world where disagreeing with somebody isn't the end of the world. Disagreeing with somebody isn't war where disagreeing with somebody is a place to start. And we've, we've lost that. We're supposed to have discourse as a place to begin, not the place to end. You know, once we disagree, this is over with. No, it's supposed to be, we disagree. Now we have to talk. And we've lost that. You know, the tough, the tough thing too is that, and I, and maybe my experience is unique through this, but like, you know, I, I grew up in an immigrant family, um, where, you know, at one point in our lives, like my entire family, including aunts and uncles and everybody lived in the same house. And we had to, we had to basically fight our way through all of our problems pretty much constantly, right? I go from that to um, a, a high school experience in which I was doing speech and debate and I was, you know, on stage quite a bit and having to deal with those challenges. And then, you know, once I go into college, I'm, I'm focusing on things like political science and journalism um, and psychology. So I've built a life craving challenge and i think that 
the experience for a lot of people is nothing close to that, which is probably the reason why in the, both the political spectrum, spectrum as well as the social, the, the social strata that I exist in, this, this idea of safety is so asinine to me um, because I, I thrive on challenge. You know, I, I thrive on having someone question my beliefs and, 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 and convince me otherwise. Because even if they don't change my mind, they have a perspective that I have not seen, you know? Right. Well, I'm trying to remember the Jaron Lanier quote from um, 10 Arguments to Delete Your Social Media. It was something along the lines of, I don't want a world that's completely safe. I want a world that challenges me. And obviously, it was far more eloquent, but I don't, I don't have the time to just sit here and search for it. Um, but anyway, we'll finish this conversation when you get deeper in the book. Let's let's jump well, on to something else. Well, a part of that too, before we exit out of this 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 you know, dive is, I think social media would be far more useful if people were honest on social media. Sure, sure. Um, I don't really have anything to say about that because I'll tell you one thing that's great about deleting the social media. <laughs> I, I don't give a shit about it as a topic anymore. <laughs> it interests me about as much as a butterfly's butthole. I could care less. That's probably more interesting to you because you don't know what a butter, you don't even know if butterflies have buttholes. Yeah, that's, I was thinking about that when I said that, but they do leave little turds, so they have to have oh, little true. stinkers. Okay, mm. so little stinkers, interesting. I feel like you just uh, found the episode title. Everybody jump over to DuckDuckGo and search those two words, butterflies, butthole, and see what comes up. I'm not going to do it right now. Okay, <laughs> so um, I have a bunch, of, a bunch of stuff, but they're all little small things because um, I just happen to have a bunch of little small things. So it should be interesting. Um, but, but, but I'm trying to... Shake things up a little bit. You know what would be a good one to jump into right now? Um, talking about blandness. Um, we've talked over the years, you and I personally and on the show have talked about um, Medium, the the website Medium and how great it was and all this stuff. It fucking sucks now. <laughs> oh, man. So really? now. It's, it's, it's like the same shit over and over again. Everybody's writing the same damn articles over and over again. No depth and just uh, same productivity tips, same business tips, the same shit over and over again. You can go in there and search and look around and you're not going to find anything interesting anymore. It's really, you know what it reminds me of? YouTube. Mm. You know, YouTube for a while, it was really fascinating. You go on, you and I had, and I was thinking about this because uh, it was like episode three or something. We had talked about YouTube and how great YouTube was and we thought it was the the future of television. It's so boring now because it's like literally the same people, the same thing with Medium, same people sharing the same information, except it's like, I, I, I know this information that this other person did, but this is my video saying the same thing. So it's like, it's like same people just with different, or different people with the same script. They're all just reading the sure. same thing, giving the same tips. I wonder why that is. Why did, what makes these communities just... <laughs> All the all the creativity gets sucked out of them. Well, I I, I go back to your algorithm issue. Um, I think too many, I think too many places are so concerned with eyeballs that they don't care about difference. To see how you know, to, I didn't know that he hadn't missed a meditation session in forty years. But in a lot of ways, looking back at his work, you can definitely see the 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 effect that 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 or the freedom that that allows a person. You know, the ability to 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 not live within a, a preconceived 
world or, 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 or a, a comfortable box in which you are creatively. I mean, there are plenty of great directors that we know that have produced fantastic movies, but they definitely live within a box. You know, if you look at a guy like J.J. Abrams or Zack Snyder, two of the bigger guys out right now, they definitely have a box of tricks that they live within. And as brilliant as some of their movies are, they're very predictably J.J. Abrams or, you know, Zack Snyder or, or David Fincher or whoever it is. And this is not to diminish the quality of their work. It's just to say that with a guy like Lynch, you could watch 10 Lynch movies in a row. And sure, some of them may have some similarities. Um, but I think the only real similarity, uh, the only real cohesive line that you have between all of them is how inherently different they all really are. Yeah, I think that quote is actually from the book itself. And he goes into this whole idea of diving into this unconscious, like, that uh, normal, because he's he's a practitioner of transcendental meditation, which is um, revolves around uh, a mantra that's given to you by a guru. I don't know the mechanics of it, um, and he goes in there. He says that there, there there's a definite difference between that type of meditation and normal meditation, which is kind of what you and I are more familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, and he says that you know, like it it'll calm you and it brings you to a sense of awareness, and and it it's beneficial to you in every way. But the transcendental meditation, he says, dives you into that unconscious in a completely different way. It, it doesn't take you to the border. It throws you over the line. And he says, and what's on the other side of that line, it's, it's not hokey and it's not goofy like people think when they talk about uh, meditation or they hear about meditation. It's a thick beauty is the term that he uses. And, I've, and that, that's kind of stuck with me, this idea of thick beauty. And I think that the, at, at its heart, like the best parts of his movies have that thick beauty, like that moment of in a Mulholland Drive in the middle of the movie where the woman is singing uh, the Roy Orbison song in Spanish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thick beauty. Mm hmm. Oh, it's there are so many poignant moments in, in Lynch films. I the, the his ability to do that in such a sincere way is so is, is is difficult for me to watch sometimes. I remember I mean because I, I watched Eraserhead probably long before I was ready to. Um, I, I saw it in my early teens, so I didn't get it at the time. Um, and I actually thought it wasn't it wasn't a very good movie when I first watched it or watched it. Um, and I only appreciated it later on. But then I think when I was nineteen, somewhere eighteen or nineteen, I saw The Elephant Man and that movie changed my life, um, changed the course of my creativity, changed my ability to tell a narrative story, changed my sensibilities as a person in so many ways. Um, and I think that the, 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 that is, that is a movie that from beginning to end smacked me in the face with that, 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 that thick beauty that you're describing. Um, and it hit me at, at, at a level that I didn't think any piece of art ever could. I think, uh, God, that movie is just so great. And I mean, if, if, people haven't seen it it's young anthony hopkins yeah <laughs> and i mean I, I was thinking about that while we're, i was going through stuff for this episode i'm like how in the hell did he get anthony hopkins and i was like oh because he was like nobody then like he was yeah, just a yeah. shakespearean actor he hadn't been you know it wasn't until later in life that hopkins like became hannibal lecter and then just his career took off so just to think about this young david lynch and this young anthony hopkins making this movie and and I would say it's it's I haven't seen the straight story, which is the Disney movie, so that might take the place later. But I would say of everything else, which is what fifteen other movies, that is his most straightforward. Elephant Man is his most 
normal film, if you can use the word normal. I totally agree, I, and w- which is funny because um, I hold it side by side with Lost Highway, uh, which is in my my top five for for Lynch films. Um, but they're so different. Um, I mean, let's not forget that John Hurt, one of the best actors in the history of Hollywood, um, was was um, Joseph Merrick Merrick um, in The Elephant Man, um, changed from the original name of John Merrick, but still, I mean, it was the performances were unbelievable. The subtlety in that movie is 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 unique um in the the lynch um collection in the sense that there's just a lot of weird silence in that movie and slow movements and and subtle emoting that made the movie so much more powerful um but it's such a departure from anything else like i mean if you go back to back because if you looked at the two biggest movies of that era of of lynchian films um it's eraserhead and then elephant man and they're so different (laughs) they're so different as movies yeah, the only thing that really connects them is the fact that they're both in black and white, and that there's a freak in both of them. Yeah, which is which is even stranger because the 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 when looking back on the the creation of the Elephant Man, uh, Lynch actually shot that in color film and then processed it in black and white so Ooh, that I he would get richer tones out of it. Yeah, so the tones are are, are a weird density like there's there's a richness to the black and white, and the reason why that was was because it was shot on color film. So okay. it's interesting. Interesting, interesting, and that's a common technique for photographers in general to shoot photos in color, and then turn them into black and white and post to maintain. Yep, those, that's true. That mm-hmm. depth, but of course he was doing that thirty years before any of us. You know, the, of course these days in Photoshop and 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 you know with our even with our phones these days it's easy to do. But imagine the the nightmarish endeavor that is taking film stock and converting it from color to black and white. I can't even imagine. Incredible, and and think about the person that was uh funding that film going oh (laughs) but it was the right choice and and yeah that movie it was made in the early 80s i mean most people when they watch that movie think it was made much earlier than that but it was actually made in the early 80s um when films like that were unheard of you know you're 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 holding this next to 16 candles in the breakfast club and 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 you know movies like star wars even um it was such a different film it was so much more subtle and so much more slow um, and that's that's that takes a bravery that that you know not just from Lynch's perspective, but from the people who funded that movie, from the people who who let two Shakespearean actors in Anthony Hopkins and um, um, John Hurt take such prominent roles in an expensive movie. And of course, in in examining that movie for what it is, you know who better than Mel Brooks um, to produce it, and he's the one that ended up producing it too as well. So I think it's that whole project is just fascinating from beginning to end. What a what a from an early stage, what a clear sense of vision. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's rare, but I think that it goes back to what we're saying here is that he's, he's willing to take the journey to him. Creativity is, is about the journey. And I guess you can't help, but be clear if you're ready to turn at any moment. And that goes back to what I was saying about follow the project. I think sometimes we all get caught up in this idea of fighting against something to make it what it was. Um, or make it what we thought it was going to be or what we want it to be. And, sure. and and we end up trying to do essentially what we describe as putting a square block in a, in a round hole. Um, it just doesn't work. Uh, for example, like going back into my novel for a second, I went through a huge thing on Monday. Uh, I was looking at it and I'm going, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to make this part is not working for me. Why isn't this working? And I had to do what Stephen King refers to as kill your darling. 
Yeah. And I, I killed a whole section of the book because I realized that it was extraneous, that I did not need it, and that I was working really hard to make it fit into the context of the book, and it was actually an obstacle. And if I don't think if, if I hadn't been studying Murakami uh, last month and studying Lynch this month that I that I maybe I might not have made that decision. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, how 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 difficult is it from your perspective as a writer to to invest so much time and energy into either a character or a setting and then have to off it? <laughs> it's frustrating. It really is. But I mean it's you have to remind yourself and it's it's impossible because you know that's why the phrase kill your darlings is so prevalent right now i've heard it come up so many times recently um because people are it's starting to sink in for people because there are things that you create that they are they're not your children because that doesn't cover it they're your darlings you know there's there's a preciousness to these creations and we work so hard to make them work but you have to realize that the bigger darling is the project itself is mm-hmm. the movie is the book and uh keeping this one little thing uh what's it going to do is it going to ruin the whole thing well if it ruins the whole thing then it ruins the darling itself too so you have to make that sacrifice and it's hard it is a sacrifice um but you once you do it and then things start moving forward you know you made the right choice and that's the beauty of creation. You can always reverse gears. You know, if you if I kill this section of the book and I move forward and I go, oh, crap, I need that. I still have it. I can still yeah. put it in. Uh, editing is the most underrated art of all time, both in video, in photography, in writing, in everything. Editing is everything. Sure. Uh, and I think that the Lynch is a great example of that, too. I mean, his editing the the way he what he does you know this idea where he talks about juxtaposing two images that's all done through the editing sometimes sometimes sure. the, spe- the the scenes that there's no connection between some scenes mm-hmm. he slams things up together for the juxtaposition oh god lost highway <laughs> that's, that's lost highway much... is the most jarring movie of all time i i absolutely love it um but lost highway i i remember seeing it with people who um, weren't weren't really fans of Lynch, or not not really fans, but just didn't really know of his work. You know, just kind of the the, the standard moviegoer, and how jarring of an experience a movie like Lost Highway really is if you have no if you have no background on who Lynch is or how he does the things that he does. Yeah, it's it's, it's like he he went to the the extreme on editing and and scatter with Lost Highway, and then he came in with Mulholland Drive and kept that same aesthetic, but then now he introduced this duality thing that just screws with your head for the whole movie. Yeah. And and I don't know that, uh, I wouldn't say that he screws with people, but he definitely plays against expectations. Um, he knows what people expect and he, instead of, so a lot of times you, you have this, there's a line in the middle, right? And that's the expectation and people go to the right. They want to fulfill that expectation. Um, I think as far as I know, Lynch is the only filmmaker who goes to the left. He goes as far and he leads you further so far away from your expectation that that becomes the whole experience, that the experience is about exploring something that is shouldn't have been possible, essentially. Let me ask you this, though. I mean, I, I feel like there's there's 
some of some of it's grounded in a reality though. I mean, Lost Highway obviously is just all over the map um, when it comes to its themes um, and its narrative storytelling. But if you look at a movie like Blue Velvet, for example, that one goes to the left, but it goes to the left in a very visceral way. Um, like that's a pretty brutal movie to watch, um, and the themes are pretty pretty ruthless as well. Um, so, I, I, what do you think about that as 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 a medium to reset the audience? For example, I, th- I think part of the reason why Lynch does it is so that he can get the 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 audience back to a zero point on their expectations, and then he can build a story around that. Well, definitely, he's the master of of swiping them and then pulling them and prodding them and turning them. And it's because he's not actually trying to do it to them. He's trying to do it to himself. Sure. And and we have no choice but to go with him, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like we're 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 we've been kidnapped, but you know we've been kidnapped as collateral. You know, it's like Daddy was the one that got kidnapped, and we just happened to go with him. You know, we're stuck in the situation because of what Daddy did, and yeah. that's essentially what Lynch is doing. He's just he's. He's finding out. He's he sees he knows how to pull that comfort in, so he doesn't lose the audience completely. I mean, there is a plot structure to everything, uh, although sometimes it is tenuous, um, and even he will admit that. But then he he sees a, a spot where there's no light shining, and he goes, "What's over there? Let's go over there." Sure. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember in Inland Empire, there's that rabbit thing. Mm-hmm. With the rabbits yeah. watching TV and like walking around the house, and it's, oh, yeah. it's 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 for people who haven't seen it. It's essentially it's it's people in bunny suits, um, just acting like a like a nineteen fifties family. Um, there's no explanation to it. There's no explanation to how it fits in the movie or anything like that. But it's it's something that he brought in maybe just as one small idea, and he just kept going. Well, what if I make it a little bit longer? If I make it a little bit longer, and then I mean Inland Empire in my opinion, uh, is almost the opposite of Lost Highway. Lost Highway was scatter, jump, 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 jump. Inland Empire is like, how long can this scene go? Yeah, definitely true. How far can I push this scene? And I think that uh, he understands how to keep an audience, but he also understands how to sometimes betray the audience to their benefit. Sure. I feel like even in some of his more predictable work, like, I mean, the the two based on, well, no, most of his stuff is based on something, but I mean, the two that are based on books, um, like, I'm, I'm going to bring back one of my favorites into this discussion, which is Dune. Um, love the book, love the movie, two completely different pieces that have nothing to do with each other. Um, and I think in a lot of ways for me, um, it was... Dune, as both the book and the movie, kind of taught me to separate the two pieces and to view them as as brilliant pieces of work without comparing them to each other. And I think that that Lynch's Lynch's sensibilities in in the movie um, created a very different universe for me than the book did. So yeah, definitely, I think he he has a way of pushing and pulling the story um, in the way that makes the most sense to him in the moment in which the story is being told. It's almost like he's making it up as he goes, um, and there's definitely a very clear sense of that. But Somehow he manages to weave it all together um, in such a way that the story then makes some kind of collective sense. And I think there's there's such a skill to that that's that's pretty fascinating. Dune's also a favorite of mine. Uh, I think technically, if I remember correctly, that's the first Lynch film I ever saw. Um, huh. But technically, neither of us saw that as a Lynch film because it was not released as a David Lynch film. David, True. He, Alan Smithied it. And for those mm-hmm. who don't know what that means, when a director makes a film... And uh, 
they're not happy with the final product, they will have their name removed. And the fictitious name Alan Smithy is added yes. to the credits. <laughs> David Lynch directed Dune. I don't know the whole story of why um, why he Alan Smithied it. I do know that there are like four or five different edits of that film that I've run across. And these aren't like minor differences, you know, like this is the shorter version, this is the extended version. Um, one has a male narrator, another one has a female narrator. One has this scene and not this scene, but the other one has this scene and not this scene. There's no definitive version of that film. Sure. And, and I think what probably happened is he lost control of final edit and he, he told them to shove it. Yeah, I think in 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 reading what I did about Dune because that that movie fascinated me. Yeah, I've I've seen so many different versions of it. And if you take the shortest version and the longest version, the stories are very different. Um and I remember reading somewhere that that Lynch as he was making it felt like he was making compromises for the studio along the way. Um and yeah, he definitely didn't have final cut, but the 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 compromises are ultimately what made him feel um, like he had lost control of the movie and it wasn't the studio's fault. It was because he felt like he had a responsibility to the studio to make a certain kind of movie. Um, I think the final theatrical release was close to his cut, but I think that the version that they ultimately re released on TV was almost an extra hour longer and contained footage that he had no desire to put in the final product. So I think that's part of the reason why it became a, an Alan Smithy um, versus um, him having any attachment to it at all. Um, it, I think later on he said that there were parts of the movie he was definitely proud of, but the final the final product was so askew from his original vision that he didn't want to have his name on it. Not that it was necessarily a bad film, but that the story was very different from his original intention. And I think that's probably why he stopped working with books, right? It's, it's, I mean, when you're working with a book for subject matter, you're kind of responsible to finish it at least kind of close to how the book ends. True. And for someone who does all the things that we're talking about that, that follows the journey, to have a definitive storyline laid out and to have to concede to that. I mean, like even Elephant Man had to be different difficult for him because he had to conform to the man's actual life mm -hmm. uh, john merrick was a real person and the elephant man is a, is a beautiful book by christina sparks um and maybe that's the reason he changed his name to joseph merrick because maybe mm -hmm. he changed some elements that he of the man's life um i just i think that 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 would be difficult i mean when you really look at the succession of films, and I may be wrong in the order because I'm not going to look right now, but we go from Eraserhead, which is a pretty crazy film, to <laughs> <That's pretty wildly. laughs> Elephant Man, which is a pretty is his most restrained film as mm -hmm. far as craziness. Then to Dune, right? Yep, it's Dune right after that, yeah. And then Wild at Heart? Um, I'm not sure if Wild at Heart is first or Blue Velvet's first. Either but it's, way. But they're but they're both around the same time, so it doesn't matter. Either way, I mean, it just if either one of those fits in in the storyline, where it's like I tried to make this movie Dune, and then screw this, I can't do this storyline thing, Blue Velvet or Wild at Heart, you're gonna drop in like this crazy film that's the complete opposite that goes back to the Eraserhead aesthetic. And yeah, and and let's not forget that very soon after that. Um, he started working on the project that I, I would assume that most of the general public knows him for, which is Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah, which is coming back in 2017, by the way. 
Yeah, I can't wait for that. I'm really curious. I totally forgot about it until like a week ago, and I'm like, wait, shouldn't that be out already? And I had to look it up. And of course, you know, there's like nothing. It's all hush hush. It just says 2017. Even if that sucks, which I doubt it's going to, I'm in. It's just like the X Files. When the X Files came back, I don't care. I liked it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it came back against all expectations, something you love. And in the case of Twin Peaks, something you love that lived very briefly comes back. That's pretty incredible. And for Lynch to be willing to dive back into that, for those who aren't like huge Twin Peaks fans, um, it's not a weird thing that he's doing this. Actually, um, some people think that he always planned to bring Twin Peaks back. Because there are many times within the show Twin Peaks, which was only two seasons, technically like a season and a half, mm-hmm. um, many times in the show where they mention 25 years in the future. 2017 is 25 years in the future from when the show originally aired. Which that continuity alone is unbelievable. Ugh, the genius of that. I, I, I'm, I'm. I, I can't imagine the deal that he made with whoever he made in order to to ensure that it would be possible to make that 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 continuation 25 years later. I'm sure considering who Lynch is that that was completely planned. It says it says a lot about who he is as a as a as a person, as a director, as a creator that number one all these actors are willing to come back. And even like even in his films how many actors he brings back over and over again, Kyle McLaughlin, um uh Laura Dern so many mm-hmm. actors that he's worked with over and over again. It says a lot about him, but to come back and be willing to do a show 25 years later, it's mm. incredible. And there's there's a part of me that before I realized the 25-year thing, before I went through and rewatched Twin Peaks um, last year and remembered the 25-year thing, at first I was a little bit bummed out that they were bringing it back because there was kind of a magic between the show and the movie firewalk with uh, firewalk with me and the twin peaks show it created a circle in the sense that uh firewalk with me was the beginning and the end mm-hmm. it introduced the beginning of the tv show but it also ended the tv show which if you guys haven't seen it i sound like a lunatic right now but we are talking about david lynch and it, it the show and the movie are a complete circle what happens yeah. in the future uh is events in the past it's it's hard to explain i don't i hope that it, this doesn't ruin that aesthetic though because <laughs> that's that's pretty incredible in and of itself that you can create something that's circular yeah especially in this day and age where most uh, storytelling is particularly linear um there's 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 a craft to to lynchian storytelling that is i think he's always kind of been that way i mean if you look at projects like lost highway or mulholland drive there's definitely i mean mulholland drive a little bit more loosely but there's definitely a circular feel to them in a weird kind of way you know yeah i think he just uh he loves repeating themes and uh like for example going into mulholland drive there's um he likes repeating things but repeating them in different circumstances to yeah. to see how they change even though it might be the same thing. Uh, for example, uh, Naomi Watts' character, who has a different name in each section, so don't ask me to remember. Um, <laughs> I think one of them is Betty. I can't remember. But anyways, in the first section of the film, she's practicing that scene. Uh, yeah. And then later, she does that same exact scene with Chad Everett, who, by the way, I'm named after. Um, yeah, nice. Nice. 
uh, they do that, and she does that scene, and she does it differently because now she's actually performing the scene. But to take those same exact words and play them in a completely different context, um, and not just in the fact that in one she's practicing and in the other one she's more performing, but in the first one it's woman to woman, in the second one it's man to woman, in the first one it's violent. Yeah. It's it's it, until you realize that they're practicing lines, you think that she's going to kill Rita. I don't know why I remembered her name. Um, <laughs> and in the Cause second, because it stays constant. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, you're right. It does. And in the second one, it's it's super sexual. Um, yeah. So he takes he takes those those re- repetitions, but then tweaks them. And I I just think that's more than anything. I think that's some of the most brilliant stuff he does right there. That's why that's my favorite Lynch film. And and it doesn't hurt that it's it's such a beautiful film. It's there's it, it, everything about that movie is just pretty to me. Um, and it doesn't hurt that Naomi Watts, who I think is beautiful to begin with, it was was just perfectly cast in that role. I mean, there's just a magic to that movie from beginning to end, not just from a narrative standpoint, but from an aesthetic standpoint. That's just magical to me. Yeah, everybody in there where you're like, oh, this guy is a douchebag. Yep. That's that's what he's supposed to be. Like the instant yep. you see somebody, Lynch is really good at casting in the sense that he he can cast people that don't typically look like the character, mm-hmm. um, and but he knows that they can be that character, and so much so that the moment you see any Lynch character, they're already defined the moment you see them. Like that facade already defines them. Yeah, I mean even even his himself, even casting himself in Twin Peaks as Gordy. Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, it, <laughs> I forget that he did that <laughs> as the the completely deaf FBI director. <laughs> yeah. But he's I mean, he's perfect. The moment you see him and then you hear him talking, you're like, yep, that's what a guy like that would look like. Yeah. And yeah. to be able to cast yourself perfectly, uh, it's the opposite of what Tarantino does when he casts himself. He he casts himself in in the worst roles on purpose. Sure. Um, I don't I, I think that. Lynch is when we talked about this and we talked about the idea that we had both seen almost all the films and we I I didn't realize that uh, I think that Lynch is he's like this sneaky little ninja in my creative life <laughs> <laughs> like I he he influence he's influencing me in ways when I don't even know it I don't even know how important he is into my creativity because I'd, I I maybe he's wired his way into my subconscious as well and he just doesn't live on my conscious level Oh, I can see that. I mean, I definitely, I, I look at certain movies like um, um, I became a brooding, fear, death-fearing bastard for a while because of uh, because of Pullman's performance in Lost Highway. So I totally hear you. Do you remember the name of the actor that played Death? Speaking of casting, in uh, well, not Death. It's not officially confirmed that he's Death, but the 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 the, the pale-faced dude in uh, Lost Highway. Do you do you remember who that was? No, the guy that kind of looks like Klaus Nomi. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't remember his name. I got, I got to track that down You're at like, some point. Is he Asian? I... Is he not Asian? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, he's he's one of those actors. Like, um, oh god, what's that guy's name? There's a German actor, Udo Krier or something like that. Um, I can't remember. Anyways, he's he's one of those guys <laughs> that's just one of those strange-looking humans, and not as an insult to them as people, but they just stand out. Yeah, totally, totally. And uh, God, we that guy. I don't. I wonder if that guy's been in anything. What if he looks normal, nor normally, and we've seen him and stuff, and we just don't realize it? 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. And and considering that it's Lynch, that's definitely possible. Considering his propensity towards casting people that make no sense outwardly to those roles, but make total sense when you see them. I think it more so than than most artists. Um, I think there are a few artists that have this effect on me, but more so than most artists, um, Lynch has more of an effect on my 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 being as a person than he does um, as me as an artist. Um, I think his work definitely seeps into my subconscious much more strongly um, than other film directors um, that I really like. Because if you look at certain movies, uh, or I mean certain directors, like Fincher, for example, I love Fincher, but I don't leave a Fincher film feeling that my my brain has been altered somehow. Um, And I feel like every time I watch a Lynch movie, something about me has fundamentally changed. (laughs) Yeah, in some way, like Lynch reminds me of... uh... Wayne Coyne from Flaming Lips in the Mm -hmm. sense that you listen to Flaming Lips and you think these guys are on some drugs and he is completely clean and sober and always has been. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's the same with Lynch. Like you watch a Lynch movie and you're like, this guy is on some hardcore, difficult acid, probably some speed mixed in there. Nope. (laughs) He's he's a meditating Buddha-like figure. Uh, who, who just happens to be completely unhinged with his imagination. There's there's something just really fascinating about that to me. And considering the, 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 the scope of his work, too, I mean, we're not even talking about um, the, the comic series that he did. you ever see that, the comic series that he did? Angry uh, Dog? Yeah, the angriest dog in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's so it's such a strange project. Um, and it's it's it, it seems to me just like Lynch just does whatever he wants whenever his imagination pulls him towards it. So I think it's really fascinating. You know, he did that for nine years. No, I didn't know that. Holy daily, cow. daily Jeez. for nine years. Uh, so he's like he's like the Asimov of, of crazy film, I guess. <laughs> I've, I've said this before. I think some of the most underrated creative people in the world are the people who do comic strips. Sure. Can you imagine waking up every day and having to draw something and be funny every day? No, I couldn't. I, I couldn't imagine. Who's the Who's the guy that did uh, Garfield? I forget his name. Jim Davis. Jim Davis. That's right. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't imagine. Or um, Calvin and Hobbes. You know, the, any one of the ones that we 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 know and love. I just can't imagine the amount of creativity that it takes to do that every single day. Charles Schultz. He did it for like Charles Schultz. sixty yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, unbelievable. And and that's, uh, I I know what it's like to create daily. I did it with the vlog. But that's a level. I mean. On the vlog, all I was doing was thinking of ways to communicate what I was thinking and feeling, and that was hard. But to create something that isn't your life, that isn't filtering your life in the sense that I'm not sharing what I'm thinking and feeling, to dig outside of yourself and to find something funny that other people are going to relate to, incredible. Lynch did it for nine years, and he said that the reason – he talks about it briefly in the book. Um, The reason he stopped is – so he had an editor at the – I don't remember what magazine it was that started it. Um, that editor left. He worked with some other editors. That guy came back. And when the guy came back, he said, this has kind of run its course. And Lynch being Lynch was like, cool. And just went with that. Okay, this is done. This phase is over. Huh. And he talks about like even the, the impetus of that idea is like he just drew this dog that looked really angry. And he, he thought, what if I do like four cells and the dog doesn't change, but three of them are the daytime third one's at night so you can see a passage of time and the only thing that changes in the comic is what's being said inside the house and that would be what pisses the dog off and (laughs) so you just have to think of different things every day that's gonna piss off this dog god for nine years incredible unbelievable (laughs) that is insanity oh my god that's i mean that's that's almost what three thousand comics 
Ugh, something to that effect. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable. And and in between all of that, he's making he's making Dune and Twin Peaks and everything else. That's shocking. Yeah, he's. Uh, you're right. He's up there with Asimov. I feel like uh, we might have to do Asimov next, just because yeah, we that, talked that's... about him so much. Oh man, I I almost don't want to do him next just because of the amount of homework it's going to take to do Asimov. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. Screw it, let's just do it. <laughs> well, I mean, we're we're once again we're not here to give an index of who the person is. It's just we're going to figure out about their creativity. Sure, sure, you sure. Know? And there's a lot of interviews of Asimov. Anyway, so I guess we're announcing right now the next episode will be Isaac Asimov. Can you can you imagine like when 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 Eraserhead came out? I mean, we, let me let me ask you before I even go into this. What did you think of Eraserhead when you first saw it? Uh, it's been a while, so I don't know. I don't really know what. I just remember, as with most Lynch film, I kind of remember being baffled. <laughs> sure. Um, I think that part of I think I went into it expecting knowing that it was before Elephant Man. I think I expected it to be less Lynch. I mean, uh, for that to be your first film and to be so close to your style. Yeah. Uh, so I think that I expected, I went in with it, expectations of more plot structure. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I think I spent most of the movie going, holy crap. <laughs> yeah, because the reason I ask is because when, 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 it came out it was no one had any idea what to do with it i remember um you know when we first started our, our dive into lynch um four weeks ago one of the things that I, I i remember reading was that they wouldn't even screen it at, at can um and they didn't allow it to be um submitted into the new york film festival because it was so weird <laughs> and the poor guy and, well, and and so many people panned it too. Like a lot of people absolutely hated it. But some 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 critics out there hailed it to be one of the most groundbreaking pieces of cinema in the history of cinema. So it was such such a weird, you know, such a diamet diametrically opposing views of that film right when it came out. And I thought I thought that was really interesting. And what's brilliant about Lynch and actually Jack Nance, which is the actor, the main actor in there is the dedication they had to that film. You know that it took three years to make that film? I thought it took five, actually. It might have taken five, including post and pre-production. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it took it, them three to film it, yeah. Three yeah, yeah. years to film it. And that's not because what they were doing is difficult. It's because they kept running out of money. Uh, in the book, he goes into a little bit more depth, and you should just read the book, and I'm not going to recite the whole thing. But essentially, he says that there's a scene in the movie He's basically thanking Jack Nance for sticking with him for three years, which <laughs> yeah. incredible. He says, imagine holding that character in your head for three years. Jeez. But, yeah. Uh, true. But there's a scene in the movie where Jack Nance walks up to a door. He doesn't say exactly which scene it is. He says they didn't get him to walk through that door for a year and a half. Huh? So they lost funding literally in the middle of a scene. So, Jack Nance had to remember that scene for a year and a half just to be able to finish it. Yeah, the the stories of how that movie ended up getting made are, are pretty fascinating. I mean, originally, like I, I think his script was was twenty one pages long in total for that whole for that whole <laughs> film, and I think he he his intention was to make it like a forty or fifty minute short film, and it ended up becoming a full length film. Um, and I, I remember reading at some point that he had to take on a paper route 
Um, yes. You know, distributing New York Times to people in order to just fund the damn thing. So that's 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 pretty that's pretty hilarious to me that a guy like David Lynch, one of the cornerstones of modern American cinema, had to take a paper route to film one of his his groundbreaking movies. It's and pretty awesome. What's also hilarious about that is he was married at the time, so there's all these people pressuring him. You know, go get a normal job, give up on this film. It's ridiculous. Give up on it. And instead of listening to them, not only does he not give up on the film. For some reason, he goes and gets a paper route, which is what little kids do. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, it's just very. It's like when he goes, he says that there's that there's something about the film that felt unfinished to him, and I can't remember. I think this happened to him after the film was already over, but he said the film felt unfinished, and he picked up his Bible, which is weird because he's not a religious man. He said he picked up his Bible, and he said he flipped to a certain page, and he read one passage, one line from one passage and he said ah now the film is complete (laughs) and he says he's never going to tell anybody what that line is but that film was already done he had to read something for the film to finish for him Uh, because it it really is a journey I'm I'm so curious as to what that passage is. I got I I doubt he'll ever reveal that anywhere. But I'm just I, just from a pure creative perspective, I'm very curious as to what that was and why it exists the way that it does. And if it was anybody else, you could probably watch the film and go, oh, okay, this is kind of the general theme. I think it's this line. It's David Lynch. It could be yeah. any line. In it there. could literally be anything. Yeah. yeah, it could be one of those. <laughs> this guy begat this guy begat this guy lines. Who knows? Oh, fascinating. I I I don't. Even t- I'm I, now I I can't wait for for the because um, unlike most other directors who kind of dabble in in other projects while they're doing their main ones, um, I know that Lynch has been neck deep in this Twin Peaks remake for a while. So I'm really curious as to where this one's going um, because you know mentioning the 25 year thing, like even thinking about Lynch in general, he's so uncompromising as an artist that I'm 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 curious to see how how Lynchian this this Twin Peaks is going to be. And I have my sneaking suspicions that it's actually going to be a strangely straightforward story. Um, and it's going to be, I guess, what we want, what we wanted the second season of True Detective to be in, in a weird kind of way. Well, I know that um, production shut down at least twice yep. um, during filming because he got in arguments with, um, I don't know if it was Showtime or if it was um, whoever was funding behind Showtime. But he, somebody was pissing him off, so he just kept walking away. He's like, if it's not my way, it's not going to be done. And when you're David Lynch, sure, you could say, yeah, he's reached the point where he can do that. But if you look at his whole career, he's always done that. Yeah, yeah, he's he's never not done that. Yeah. And that's that's that puts him up in the totem head of people that we should be looking at for our own creative lives. We should be looking at our own stuff and going, this is what I want it to be. And the one time he did do that significantly was on Dune, um, which is one of the most successful sci-fi movies in the history of sci-fi. And because it didn't feel like him, despite its success, he still won't put his name on it. That's pretty awesome. And I believe, I might be incorrect, but I believe when you Alan Smithy a project, you forfeit payment as well. You do. You give it all up. So he did, at the time, one of the largest budget films and did it for free because he wasn't happy with it. And it wasn't even a bad film. I mean, I, I'm, I think it's I mean, great. Of course, I have no perspective on it from Lynch's perspective, so it might not be anything close to what he originally intended. But as as a moviegoer, I thought it was a great movie. And we we would be remiss not to mention uh, Jodorowsky's Dune right here. Sure, sure. Um, 
for those who don't know, Alejandro Jodorowsky is a Chilean art house filmmaker. I don't know yeah. how, how you would describe his films. Um, they're in the category of Lynch in the sense that like they screw with your head seriously, although his are more psychedelic. Yeah. Um, originally, Alejandro Jodorowsky was the first one who was going to make Dune. And yeah. He want he got this guy named Mobius. Mobius is um, he's done covers of books for all kinds of um, science fiction and fantasy novels. Famous artists at the time. This was in the seventies, um, and he goes. He starts getting more and more money. I mean, this it, by all accounts, this would have been the most expensive film ever made uh, because he wanted to have Orson Welles as one character. He wanted to have Mick Jagger as another character. He wanted to have Salvador Dali as another character. And Salvador Dali wanted some ungodly amount of money to do this movie. Um, there is a great documentary. I'm not going to go too far into this, but great documentary called uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. You should watch that and then watch David Lynch's Dune. Because essentially what happened is uh, another person Jodorowsky found to help him design uh, like the sandworms for Dune and some of the costumes was H.R. Geiger, the artist H.R. Geiger. Huh, nice. So a lot of these people ended up getting used when Lynch made Dune. Uh, not the actors, obviously, but they got Sting instead of Mick Jagger. Like a lot of those, um, a lot of the carryovers made it into his film. He used Geiger's design still. Um, and then Geiger went on to do um, some, use some of those designs for Alien and things like that. But what's very interesting is look at this whoever had the rights to the this book and they go okay we're gonna let alejandro jodorowsky do this we're we're ready to have a crazy film it got too crazy for them so instead of going get a normal director they went and got the other guy who's just like jodorowsky to do dune (laughs) and it didn't turn out the way they wanted again (laughs) because why you picked a guy just like him that has yeah, that what'd same. What do you what do you, you expect it to do? How do you expect that to go? <laughs> oh my god! Um, you sh- you honestly though you go, I don't know if you've seen it either, Lamb. But that no, I have. documentary yeah. is brilliant. Um, the amount of pre production work that was put into that movie that was mm-hmm. a movie that was never made is incredible. They they made a book of because he illustrated every scene. He had every these guys draw an illustration of every scene, every costume, everything. It's like a two thousand page book, jeez, of prep for this movie, um, and that's why a lot of it got used again. But what's very interesting about it is not only did it some of that stuff get used again when Lynch made Dune, it also got used in films for the next fifteen or twenty years. Things from that book popped up in other things all over the place. Is that the is that the single piece of work that brought is I don't know if it's Geiger or Giger, but is that what brought him to the mainstream? Is that the 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 the, the collection of work that did it? I believe so. I can't remember to be honest, but I believe so. Because um, hmm. Alien, I mean, Alien's the one that made him popular. Um, but Alien came after that, so fascinating. Yeah, what what a heck of a project that is. I mean, looking at it from from a historical perspective. Yeah, I, I'm. Do you have any idea who the production house was that made it? I remember reading that at some point, but I don't I'm, know off the top of my head. I'm. I think it might be Disney. 
Yeah, it was such a maligned project, much maligned project for for the decade long that it took to actually end up making it. Um, and I, I, I look at it in the. I know it's it's kind of far stretched to compare Deadpool to to Dune, but just the amount of time and and care um, taken to do that movie properly is is pretty fascinating. Um, and you know, losing funding, gaining funding, finding directors, and then having people back out. Um, you know, it, it shows at least on some level how much how much love some of these producers have for these projects and how much they're willing to put in time and money wise in order to make sure that they happen and all credit to david lynch i mean anybody that's read dune at least half of that book is internal yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and it in his translation of how that internal monologue which is not even a monologue how those internal thoughts of the mm-hmm. characters work within the context of the film it works actually better in the film than it does in the book. Yeah, I actually thought the 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 storytelling wise, the the movie was better in that sense. It was quicker and and it was easier to follow. Yeah, the 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 whole fear is the mind killer. Fear is the mind killer mm-hmm. thing. It works really well cinematically. Yeah. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, fear is the mind killer. You're so fond of that statement. <laughs> oh, told you, man. I saw that movie when I was like, let's see, it came out in '84, so I was how old was I? Six. Yeah, I, re- I saw it on TV. I remember that too. I, I, on a television, a, a zenith at my parents' house. A zenith. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we watched it on. Uh, I saw it on one of those TVs that looked like a table. Remember, they look like pieces of furniture. Oh yeah, the, yeah. The uh-huh. giant wood televisions. Sure. Now we sound I mean, ancient. Is there anything on the horizon other than Twin Peaks for Lynch? Mm, I don't know. Oh, Dino De Laurentiis was the production company. Ah, gotcha. Okay, yeah, I remember reading that at some point. Um, David Lynch. Let's see what he's up to. This guy. Yes, I'm on the internet right now. Uh, no, Twin Peaks. He's been doing a lot of shorts recently, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's always. I mean, if you, anyone who hasn't, by the way, um, I know DVDs aren't a huge thing anymore. But if you can buy every movie that that Lynch has ever made on DVD, because the bonus features on most of them are just as entertaining as the movie in some cases um the one for lost highway in particular is one that um i will have kicking around in my dvd library for a really really long time yeah i wish they would bring stuff like that to netflix yeah that's true like the the short films of david lynch heck you could dedicate an entire channel to that considering how much of it there is and just the director's commentary on things it would be so nice to hear those things i I, that's one thing that i loved about dvds i'm one of the guys that would listen to director commentary um, I, I have a feeling for Lynch, though, uh, for some of his commentary, he's going to be like, OK, so for this particular short film, I'm just going to play a piccolo along with the movie um, and emphasize the parts that I feel make the most sense. Even better. Even better. Uh, <laughs> you know, what I just discovered the other day uh, Simpsons World on FX, the FX Apple TV app or whatever. It has uh-huh. every episode of The Simpsons. Not only that, though, it has commentary for every episode of The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. So I've been watching every episode of The Simpsons twice. I've been watching it once and then watching it with Matt Groening and um, whoever happens to be talking on the episode with him. And wow. I swear to God, like if you want to learn how to, I mean, these podcasts, creativity podcasts, where people are looking for creativity websites and all the time. This is bad for me to say. You don't need us. Just buy DVDs with director's commentaries. That's you're gonna learn so much about creativity in general just listening to every one of those it's a different journey for every director but there's so many lessons in there 
and 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 it's just hidden in banter. Uh, yeah, like at, one of my favorite director commentaries of all time was for the cell. Um, there's it's just it's hilarious. There's parts like there's a there's a scene in the movie where this girl's floating in a tank of water, and the director, who's an Indian, um, an Indian man, he says something along the lines of, "This girl, she was awful." He's got this beautiful this beautiful accent, which makes it like fifty times funnier. But he's like, "This girl, she was just awful, awful." I wish we I wish we had used the other girl for this scene because this girl I couldn't even get the camera close to her because <laughs> apparently oh, she was such a bad actress he couldn't he couldn't put shoot the camera in close to her because then you'd see how bad she was acting. Wow. And it's it's hilarious, but then it it, it takes you on these journeys of creation. Of seeing, you know, like we we see the final products, but to see the journey that an artist goes on, and uh, I feel like film is the most difficult medium because film requires cooperation. Sure, and it requires more people than you can imagine, and organizing teams and having a guy to organize that team. It's it's a corporate structure every time you make a film, mm-hmm. and I mean you. You can make a, a film by yourself, sure, but you can't make the Avengers by yourself. Oh, man, think about some of the projects that we worked on with our friends, no less. I mean, some of those projects are, are pretty far-reaching in scope, and just the amount of logistical nightmare that's required just to get 20 people in the same place at the same time is pretty remarkable. Right, like the, the Kung Fu Vampire video we did. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking that one, too. Just thinking about how difficult it was just to figure out how to get, you know, three different vehicles worth of people from one location to the next because we had to shoot that in such a short period of time. Or when we were trying to get the smoke up behind Shannon and Nick and Matt and I were laying on the ground where you couldn't see us trying to fan the, the smoke machine up. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, or having or having you crawl out of the floor. Remember that oh, that escapade? My back. <laughs> that would destroyed my back. And but you know it was all worth it. It was a, it ended up being a great video, and it was so great that Corn ripped it off on their most recent video. Yeah, so thanks Corn for taking a great musical music video idea and uh, pretty much shooting it shot for shot. It's pretty yeah, awesome. You guys are original. By the way, yes, Corn is still a band apparently. <laughs> you know it, it it does bring me back to as much as you know because it, you know obviously among our group of friends there was a big um, hubbub about you know corn corn doing that but there's there's a certain sense that i have of just like you know who cares um because i i, I especially nowadays um with the things that i've i've had to go through in the last couple of years i'm just trying to stay as far away from negativity as i can so as as annoyed as i i was at, at that whole situation um you know i i still think at least on some level I, you know i'm happy that we got to it first and i'm happy that our version looked the way that it did cuz actually to me without being you know inherently biased i still think our version was better i agree I believe that ours had more of a storyline, but I think, yeah. um, and there's nothing, let me make something clear too. Um, this goes directly back to Austin Cleon. Uh, yeah. Artists steal. That's what you do. You steal ideas because you're going to change it. And inherently their video is, you still there? Yeah. Whoa. That was weird. Uh, Skype is making strange noises. I also decided we're not going to edit these videos. I mean, these uh, podcasts anymore. <laughs> so you're going to hear all the boo-boos from now on. Um, what was I saying? Uh, oh, I felt like, uh, yeah, you steal it. That's what you do because what, when you take that, it's going to be inherently different. Uh, their video is very different. There are certain shots that are obviously 
completely influenced. The shots where I was doing, um, what you know, using my hands to manipulate the old-fashioned camera, that's almost exactly in their version. Yeah. But the, mm-hmm. where they take the storyline is a different way. But the one thing that I think that is very important to remember that Austin Cleon makes a point in both of his books to say is, yes, steal, but always give credit to who you stole from. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I got this idea from this person, but this is what I did with it. And that's just good taste. Sure. And sure. I, and I, I feel like, it, yeah, if somebody had a great idea and I thought I could spin that my way, I would do it. But then at the end, in the credits, I'd be, I would credit that person be like, go check out this movie that I ripped off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, and there are certain directors who I, I don't even like that. Well, I, I like Tarantino, don't get me wrong, but I have a love-hate relationship with that guy. But he's very good about giving credit to you know his influence and, and, and stuff like that. So I, I very much appreciate it when artists do that. Yes, Kurt Cobain used to do the same thing. I mm-hmm. mean, if you go back and look at old Kurt Cobain interviews, you can you can rip into Kurt Cobain and say he sounds like the Melvins, he sounds like uh, Flipper, he sounds like all these things. But if you go back and listen to his interviews, he mentions those bands over and over and over again. And almost every one of those bands sold millions of albums because he mentioned them. Yeah, true. Um, so mm-hmm. he, he paid his dues as well. And I think that that's, that's why it's important to do that because uh, – like you said, to focus on the positivity is is we're all here to support each other to make the world a better place by bringing things into it, by creating things. So if you use something from somebody else, it's not just about mentioning that they did it because they deserve it. It's also because you're hoping that people will go check out their thing. You're spreading yeah, the love. And it, and it brings back to, to me one of the most important quotes that I think Lynch ever had. And it's the one that, that I've been holding on to for the last couple of years, which is, Negativity is the enemy of creativity. type sound um but they didn't have one of those and they were expensive so they reproduced the sound on their album by taking picture frames and smacking them against the wall or (laughs) um i can't remember which judas priest song but there's one judas priest song it might be breaking the law i don't remember where there's this massive drum sound and everybody's like how do you get that drum sound it was literally them in the studio with a drawer full of silverware bouncing it up and down and it just gave it a metallic sound that nothing else could so yeah check out those books you'll you'll love them yeah i'm always fascinated by that like i mean you know i mean we know quite a few musicians i mean we're kind of both lazy musicians ourselves but i wonder how you know what what impulse drives a person to say you know what i'm going to take this wooden spoon and smack this tripod and see how it sounds you know what i mean like or or i'm going to take this 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 chainsaw and run it across the frets of my guitar to see what kind of noise it's going to produce you know what i mean exactly 
like there's there's a there's a certain genius uh, or I don't even know if it's genius I think it's I think it's more the 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 mentality of the sandbox you know where kids are just being allowed to be kids again and I think that 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 sense of imagination or creativity comes from letting go of 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 all of those things that you hold to be like I need to play my guitar this way or I need to play my drums this certain way maybe it just comes down to you know I need a certain sound um or I need a certain feeling and the only way I'm going to do that is to find it somehow in the universe with my creativity you know right exactly and it's it's a, it's an openness I think is what it is at at its core it's yeah. a, it's an openness to fail uh to quote uh Samuel Beckett ever tried ever failed no matter try again fail again fail better Anyways, it was just and literally said, I'm not saying uh, paraphrasing. She literally said, I've got your back. That's the phrase that she used. Damn, that's was, trippy. I don't know if they trained them to say that or whatever. Number one, she said it so naturally that I doubt it. But even if they did, that's good on you. Good on you for that training because it made me feel good. It made me feel like, uh, even though I wasn't that frustrated, um, it made me feel like, oh, I matter. I really like this person is, is an advocate for me. Man, I've never, I've never even heard anything resembling that. It was amazing. Um, so, anyways, like she goes through this whole thing, and she's really looking. So, basically, um, there's things I won't say on here because somebody could get in trouble, and it's not the person that I chatted with. Somebody at the Apple Store. Um, anyways, I found out that there is a recall, or not a recall, but a, you know, when something there's a defective part and they'll replace it for free. You know, like uh, the keyboards were kind of fucked up on some of these and they replace it for free because they realized they fucked up when they manufactured them or whatever. Well, I found out that this MacBook Pro made in 2017 without a touch bar, um, there was a recall on the battery that they were replacing the batteries. And so I went into the, the site and I typed in the serial number for this particular one. It's like, nope, not covered. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's the same machine, it's the same year, it doesn't have a touch bar, and I'm having the same problem, why isn't it covered? So that's why I originally called, right? So she goes through it, she's like, okay, so first of all, I'll be honest with you, she's like, no matter what, we're not going to be able to get it um, because of that. She says, because it wasn't all of the MacBook Pros made in that time, you know, it, it was just the ones that came from this particular serial number range, and I'm like... Oh which means that they came from a, a specific factory, right? Yeah. Um, so anyways, she's like, but I'm still going to try to find out what I can do for you. And that's when she said that I've got your back thing. Um, so she goes and she's gone for like maybe five, 10 minutes. And she comes back and she's like, okay, I'm looking at your battery diagnostics right now because the Apple store had sent it to him. She's like, yeah. She says it shows that you only have 170 cycles. She's like, that's not a lot. I'm like, nope. 
that's not a lot. Actually, it seems like really small for two years of use. Um, for anybody who doesn't know what a battery cycle is, it's every time that you fully charge the, the, the laptop or the battery. Anyways, so she ends up um, asking me the questions, and then she asked me another question that no one's ever asked me before. And she said, do you own any other Apple products? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. I said, I have this MacBook Pro. I actually still have my MacBook Air. I have an iPad. I have an old iPad mini. I have the original iPad. I've had probably 12 iPhones. I have one right now. I have AirPods. I have the Apple Pencil. I have the iPad Pro. (laughs) I have the smart cover for the iPad Pro. I have Apple TV and I have the HomePod. I'm all in. Like I literally own almost every product they make, right? (laughs) She goes, okay. (laughs) And she comes back and she leaves again. She comes back. She goes, okay, so we're going to fix this for you. And it's going to be covered. She said, because you're a longtime customer. And that's why I put Apple's, the ecosystem matters. There's an aspect of the ecosystem that we never thought about because we never experienced it. We've said this before for anybody that doesn't know this. We talk about the importance of the ecosystem of apps, uh, devices working together. Um, That having those devices, having other things by the company is what allowed me to get this one fixed. Because somebody out there was smart enough to go, is it worth $200 to retain this customer? That's given us probably close to $20,000. Jeez. And it's probably going to continue to do and spend on these devices in the future. You know, I didn't even mention, you know, it's like I pay for Apple Music. I pay for Apple News Plus. I pay for extra storage. You know, like all those other things I'm giving them money for too. Somebody was smart enough to figure that out. And I thought that was really cool because most companies out there, most big companies would say, I don't care. These are the rules. And she made sure to stress, you know, this is a one-time exception. But that's all I need. I need a one-time exception. Number one, I usually buy Apple Care. Yeah, no kidding. Huh? It's, it's not like I could have broke the battery. You know, I can't even get to the fucking thing. <laughs> well, that's a very that's a very weirdly gratitude-laden moment for a giant company. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, that's crazy. So, Apple, your senior advisors at your customer support, especially Jackie. That was her name, Jackie. Thank you, Jackie. You guys are you guys are awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But fix your hold music. It fucking sucks. Yeah, and for a company that that has such a long history in music ecosystems, it's very strange that they don't have better hold music. <laughs> well, it's it's not even like the the songs that they're playing. It's that it literally cuts out. It's like la 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 la. <laughs> Sounds like an alien coming out of your stomach. I literally have no idea what you just did right now. I just spit all over my new microphone. Solid. Nice work. Yeah. I'm also running out of liquid. Um, what topic did you pick? I'm very curious about this cursive T's, Q's, and I, or T's, uh, I's, and X's thing. What the hell are you talking about? Okay. This is a short one. I, I, I was going to actually go a little bit longer because I am curious about the benefits of handwriting. But um, suffice to say that uh, I've been slowly trying to get myself back into doing all of my notes in cursive instead of printing. Um, that said, I started thinking about how weird it is. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about how in reality, cursive writing is easier than printing because, you know, it's this flow of the pen, right? You know, all the letters connect. Boom, boom. You can just rip through that. And that's somewhat true. 
except when you have I's, T's, and X's in the words. So you put a, a really long word that has like two T's and an I or three I's and an X. When you get to the end of that line that you've written, you know, that swirly line of letters connected, you have to go back and look at that word and go, well, which of these shapes is unfinished? Oh, yeah, this one's an X. Oh, that's right. This is an I. This is an I. Oh, this is a T. And I just <laughs> I just thought that it had been so long since I'd like really done cursive. I thought that was a very interesting thing is that like there is a weird sense when you're writing cursive words that while you're writing the word, you have to remember the word that you're writing. Because when you go back at the end of the word, you got to fix it, right? You got to make sure that it's, it's, it's complete. That all your I's are dotted, all your T's are crossed, all your X's are divorced. I wonder if that's why that, 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 that cliche exists or idiom or whatever, axiom, whatever you want to call it, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's. It must. It must because because, it, you, because it's about it's about it, the devils in the details, right? Not to use a cliche to find a cliche, but well, yeah, it's it's remember know. to cross your t's and dot your i's. It's like because otherwise your words don't make any sense. You can't sure. fucking read it, right? You know the word utility. It doesn't look like the word utility if you don't dot the i's and the t. It just looks like a bunch of upward strokes with an s at the end. Oh, no, no, sorry, I said utility with a y at the end. Sure. If it was utilities, you'd have more i's. But anyways. You get my point. <laughs> so that's what that one was about. Just yes, this, I get your point. <laughs> the strange power of, of of cursive handwriting. And then I was going to go further and find out what other benefits there are to cursive and handwriting because I know there are some. Um, I know that it stimulates um, both hemispheres of the brain at the same time, the analytical and the creative, because yeah, you have that's to. A thing. Yeah, you have to create the shape, and then you are also you know spelling. And yeah, remembering sure. your T's and your I's and your X's. God, that's so random, dude. Okay, so let's let's go into CRISPR for a minute. Um, this is uh, I have a lot of notes on this, but it shouldn't be long. But this is fascinating. We've talked about CRISPR before, I think. But I was reading the April 2019 issue of Wired, and CRISPR is a, a big feature in that issue. There's several articles about CRISPR. For people who don't know what CRISPR is, CRISPR is, I'm sorry, I probably not the best person to explain this, but CRISPR is a way to splice genes. Um, and it's a way to splice genes that's just completely um, beyond anything that they ever imagined being able to do before. Um, it's literally like being able to go into like Logic Pro and cut out parts of, you know, like this. Cut out a word that I say or whatever and, you know, put in something else. It's comparative to that. So after reading these couple articles... I also remember the episode where I first heard about CRISPR of Radiolab, which is called Update CRISPR, if you guys want to listen to it. Um, the first 80% is a re-airing of an old show from 2015 called Antidotes Part 1 CRISPR. And then since it had been two years since that episode, they go about 20 minutes deeper. And that I suggest listening to Update CRISPR because that 20 minutes deeper is kind of the important shit for me at least. So anyways, um, people really like the idea of CRISPR. CRISPR is exciting. You know, if you don't understand uh, uh, maybe or you haven't thought about the benefits of splicing genes, you could, for example, we talk a lot about avian flu and uh, pig flu, uh, swine flu, sorry, swine flu and their dangers. Do, do, we, do we talk a lot about those things? <laughs> Not we. I mean the world. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, the world. Um, 
because they're dangerous and they cross over to humans and they kill humans in huge swaths, right? Well, it's possible using CRISPR to make chickens and pigs um, resistant to influenza. You just go in and take out that part of that gene. By the way, these are things you can do to animals that are already alive. That's the thing about CRISPR. This isn't stuff you do to embryos. Oh, you can do it to embryos. But you can do this to things that are already alive and change their genetic code as they stand, which is kind of incredible. That's horrifying. Um, so you could go in and you could, you know, okay, no more swine flu, no more, no more pig flu because we're going to, we'll, we'll put it into these guys. And then after a couple of generations, that won't be around because there will be no uh, animals that can carry it. Except yeah, for what's, but what's the cost? Right. That's kind of where I go with this. But another example, I want to go into some of the positive things. How about mosquitoes that are unable to carry malaria? That seems like a really good thing, right? Um, how about in humans, right? Um, cure hemophilia. No one ever has hemophilia um, because there's a, there's a defective gene that causes hemophilia. Or how about this? You could cure cancer with CRISPR because you can uh, inject a gene that creates a protein and that protein is made to do nothing but attack, attack cancer cells. You could, for example, make people HIV resistant. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a Chinese researcher, I think it was 2015, who took two human embryos and made them HIV resistant using CRISPR. Huh. I think the embryos, the embryos were not allowed to be born, but he crossed the line. By the way, no one gave him permission because there's, I mean, there's no laws saying that people can't do this, but it's kind of accepted in the scientific community that it's not, we're not ready to do it on humans yet. And he just kind of leaped over that. Um, so all you can understand all these positive possibilities, right? It's pretty easy to see that. And when you, when you update, um, when you update like a, a, a living pig or whatever, right? He has that, he or she has that gene. They're going to pass that gene on. But it's not necessarily a dominant gene, right? So it will die out eventually. So it's, it's, it doesn't change the species forever. But then, this is part of that update episode, this other guy figured out, he's like, hmm, what if you could use CRISPR to install CRISPR? So basically he said, uh, so what if you take a mosquito, we'll use the mosquitoes, and you inject a gene or you remove the part of the gene that allows them to carry malaria. And along with that, you also inject basically what is like a self-installer for CRISPR. So when that mosquito goes and breeds, it passes on that malaria resistance, but it also passes on that CRISPR installer. So then that CRISPR installer installs itself into their genetic code, and then that passes on to the next one and the next one. So eventually every mosquito on the planet would be malaria resistant forever because CRISPR would be pre-installed. Man, we don't know enough to actually use that. And that's where the repercussions thing comes in because we've talked about, uh, you and I have talked before about um, the butterfly effect. Um, what if that mosquito, what if one of the side effects of that mosquito becoming malaria resistant is that it's now poisonous to frogs? So now every frog that eats a mosquito on the planet dies. And if all the frogs die, how does that change the ecosystem? 
Well, let's let's extrapolate from the other side of that too, right? Like, I mean, we we occasionally talk about about how humanity in its current cultural state, current cultural and technological state, is essentially destroying natural selection as we know it, and how natural selection over its its millennia um, eons uh, of of helping to to build the creatures that we know and love today, including humans. Um, is fa- is basically the reason why it works is because of genetic diversity, and the, the, basically us being able to rewrite our genetic code to become a very narrow and defined genetic um, set of rules means that gen- genetic diversity, as we understand it, fundamentally dies. Which is why people are not supposed to screw their cousins or their siblings. Yeah, it, yeah, we it's built into our DNA that that produces crazy ass kids that, that that have serious problems. Right. Um so so we're essentially England had bypassing, a problem with that. Well, we're bypassing nature yet again. And I'm I'm already terrified enough that we're we're destroying genetic diversity as we understand it throughout the course of of of, of his the historic the, our historical understanding of evolution and this is just yet another more clearly defined way in which we're tampering with that. And I'm not even necessarily saying that that's a bad thing. Like if we can cure cancer, that's great. You know what I mean? But when we start specifically authoring the genes of kids to become a certain way, like if we're controlling behaviors or if we're defining what you're talking about, for example, like changing the way our physiological and and, and, and anatomical world works um, through science and, and through specific engineering, like at what point are we going to run into unintended consequences that may destroy our species or destroy entire ecosystems that will affect the entire planet? Right. Well, imagine a dictator. A dictator like what's used the most famous dictator of all time, Adolf Hitler. You're Adolf Hitler and you have this tool. You can inject docility into everyone. So now they no longer have the desire, the will, or the ability to fight you. Jeez. How about that? Or how about this? Say you're just, um, maybe you're Hitler, but you're not in charge of a country. Maybe you're just a crazy racist. Maybe you're not even Hitler. Maybe you're somebody who hates black people. What if you just decide, mm, I'm going to take this CRISPR thing and make sure that every black person only has a white child. You could kill off an entire race. You can create genocide with this thing. Yeah, or or if you make it so that all black people have a a genetic predisposition for being uh, much more affected by the flu, like influenza will kill black people. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, milk uh, poisons uh, Asian people. Like instead of getting sick, they die. You know, they already have like a, a, a lactose intolerance thing. Now they're all dead. So you can clear it. You could literally just, like you were saying, continue to contain things. And this isn't like a government conspiracy thing. All it takes is one scientist who knows how to use CRISPR and one crazy fucking brain. Because it's something that you can inject into people that are already alive. Jeez. But now you get into also, like you were saying, like, you know, like uh, narrowing things down, like designer babies. Well, nobody wants, you know, uh, nobody wants a child that has uh, red hair. Let's get rid of all those redheads, which would make me cry. But anyways, let's get rid of all those redheads. Um, 
because nobody wants them. You know, like we go through trends in society, right? Well, what if your babies are subject to trends? And it's like, well, blondes aren't popular this year. Well, you're breeding out blonde. Well, guess what? Now we'll never have blondes. Um, and then maybe, you know, like years later, it's like, sure wish we had those blondes around. It's And, and that's not even getting into the idea of um, doing these things to babies. There's no consent, right? This is an unborn life. So you're doing something to an unborn life without consent. Jeez. It's very scary. It's, that's the problem with some technologies, right? The benefits and the negatives are massive, but usually they're equal. You know, I don't know if you know this, but like trees, see a big tree. Usually the roots are the same size as the tree that you see if the tree hasn't been trimmed on the top. Trees are, are equal above ground as they are below. They're like mirror images of each other in size. Usually we trim our trees up top, but you get the point. Yeah. That. I can't remember why I said that. <laughs> I felt like you had a good point there. You had some kind of good point there. Um, oh, yeah. that's that's obnoxious. I was waiting for the I was waiting for the answer to that one. Trees, same top, bottom stuff. Don't know. That's a lost, lost. What were we talking about? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about CRISPR and. Man, where? Oh, I have no idea. I have. You had such a. You had a. You that was long winded. So it started in a very defined place, and I don't know where you were going with that. Getting rid of redheads, getting rid of, you know, um, specifically engineering things in order to kill people off the face of this planet. Oh, that's what it was. So the tree, just like the tree, is equal above ground. It is it is below ground. The benefits. The bigger the benefit of of any scientific uh, discovery or technology, we'll say. Usually the negatives are an exact mirror. That's true. So we could cure cancer. That's amazing. We could also destroy the human race. That's not so amazing. They're equal. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's why maybe giant leaps aren't always the best thing. Maybe it's better to stick with small leaps and move forward. With Unfortunately, that's the giant leaps are typically what end up happening. Um, I mean, that's one of the things that, 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 that is the, defines the Fermi paradox too, right? Is that there are certain barriers um, and one of which is technological advancement past a certain point, um, certain barriers that lead to... um, I don't generally share things I'm writing until they're done. Yep. So what I did instead was I took one of the pages that is going to be scrapped from the current form of the novel Mm -hmm. and recorded that. Huh, interesting. So there is up on my Patreon... A episode of Pants in the Chair in which I read a scene from that draft of the novel. And it's a scene that I actually enjoy that I'm bummed that I have to get rid of. Oof. Kill your darlings, Chad. I know. That's one of my darlings. It's one of my little um, (laughs) author abortions. (laughs) Oh, that's one of the most awful things you've ever said. Speaking of. Oh, my God. Feel feel free to take offense at that one. Yes, send all complaints to uh, the Instagram, please. Don't send them to my personal Instagram. My intent there was alliteration. <laughs> well, you achieved that. Oh, my God. Okay, welcome to the circus. Here comes the clown. What the fuck was that? Oh, Lordy. Oh, man. 
And uh, oh, during yes. the day episodes are definitely different. I will, I will give it that. They're weird. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with them. Yeah, it's very <laughs> strange. Well, you know what though? I feel like we packed a lot more in in a weird kind of way.